this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. I'm very thankful that my boys have a heart to follow God. And I said some of this this morning. I'll say this and get out of the way. I'm very thankful they have a heart to follow God. I'm very thankful that they feel the leading of God to be involved in ministry to whatever extent that their life finds them involved in ministry. I want to say that they're, they're young. They've got a lot of growing to do. But God will always use a willing vessel. God will always use a willing vessel. He doesn't call the qualified. If he did, I wouldn't have ever been called. He qualifies those he calls. He doesn't go down through and looking for the very best and saying, I want you to be on my team. God goes down through and he picks the ones that have a heart to pursue him and says, I'm going to make you the very best. Come be on my team. Amen. So I, I'd ask you, please, to, to love my boys, pray for my boys. Don't put them on a pedestal and say they can't do anything, uh, ever make a mistake in their lives, because I guarantee you they will let you down. I'm their daddy. I know them. Amen. But a heart that will serve God is a heart God can use over and over and over again. Harrison McCall, why don't you come and, and deliver the word of God. Preach to us. Would you say preach to us? Praise the Lord. Um, very grateful getting my first time to preach completely by choice. Totally. Um, and uh, I just came. It's probably going to be really short, so don't got to worry about that. Um, with a simple idea called God's name is. You see, God's name is, to say that, it poses a question. The question that it poses is, what is the name of God? And, how, you know, is there only one name? But right in the Bible, Zechariah 14 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. So that answers one of those questions. One name, and it's God's name. Now, some people like to pose the name as Jehovah, meaning Lord. And in Exodus 6 and 3, you know, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. That's a pretty clear statement, saying that Jehovah's name is God. So, I mean, it has a lot of validity but then jehovah carries through the bible a lot in a lot of different um references like such as jehovah jireh which means the god who sees or god will provide see this this name was given when abraham took his son isaac up to the mountain after being told by god that he had to sacrifice his son isaac to the lord and so he took him up to the mountain and he prepared the altar, and he was ready to fulfill God's word and slay his son as a sacrifice. When God sent an angel to stop him, and 
provided a ram for a sacrifice so he would not have to sacrifice his son. See, that makes that's why Abraham named that mountain, that place where he was going to go to the sacrifice, Jehovah Jireh, meaning God will provide. But Jehovah also pops up in the Bible as Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord who heals. You know, our God's a healer. And, um, you know, this comes from, it's, after, it's in Exodus, and Moses is leading the people out of uh, Egypt. You know, he's already crossed the Jordan, and he's leading them to the promised land. And um, they're, they're complaining because they went a long time with nothing to drink. And they finally found some water, and, but they couldn't drink from it because it was bitter. And the water was undrinkable. But Moses prayed to the Lord, and he got the word of the Lord, and it told him to, um, sorry, lost my place. <laughs> and um, he cast a tree into the waters, and it made the water sweet. And he said to the people, if thou wilt diligently, did diligently, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Therefore, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. But there's also Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, which... This came after Moses was, um, the, his people were battling against the Amalekites. And see, Mo, the, God said that if Moses would hold his staff above his head all through the battle, that they would come out victorious. And when this prophecy was fulfilled, Moses made an altar and named it Jehovah Nisi. Because the Lord was their banner. The Lord showed victorious. See, God had delivered his people victorious from a war with the Amalekites. Then there's Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord of peace. See, in Judges three, uh, 6, 23 through 24, And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, unto this day, it is yet in Ophrah of the uh, Abizrites. But what that was is, here's Gideon, and he has a relatively small army going up against a huge army. There's no way that, as far as numbers compared to numbers, he could win. But when he prayed to God, the God gave him peace. And see, God said, fear not. Because you will not die. And gave him peace. Therefore, making way for Jehovah Shalom. Some don't go with the Jehovah thing. They just say God's name is as simple as God. I mean, you got Genesis 1 and 1 saying, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Isaiah 43 and 12, the last three words of that verse is, I am God. I mean, pretty blatantly says God is God. No, it really says his name is God, but because God's God. But Isaiah 45, 15, Verily, thou art a God that hidest thyself, 
O God of Israel, the Savior. So there's another yet name of God, God the Savior. Then, you know, um, but there's even with verses such as Zechariah 14, I chose earlier, that said, there, uh, there be one Lord and, in, and his name, one. Ephesians 4 and 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And Deuteronomy 6 and 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Even with those verses, people still separate God into different personas, different names. You see, there are people out there who say God is three different persons, how they say it. And those persons have three different names, even though there's only one name. And those names are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you take that, so it's the Father, which is a part of God, and the Son, which is a part of God, and the Holy Spirit, which is a part of God. It would be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would be the three names. Now, in Isaiah 63 and 16, it says, Doubtless thou art our Father, through, uh, through though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. Now, see, this is a good point. God is the Father, and he is everlasting. God is the Father who is everlasting. So, God the Father, that, that's a reasonable name. I mean, I, I would guess, yeah, that's biblical evidence. But then you get down to the Son, which would be God the Son. But you see, God the Son never said a single time in the Bible. There's no biblical evidence of God the Son. There's plenty of Son of God. But then your three names should be the Father, Son of God, then Holy Spirit. But they say the Son, which would imply God the Son. But there is no God the Son. There's plenty of Son of God. But not a single time in the Bible is there mentioned God the Son, yet they still believe it as a name. Then there's God the Holy Spirit, which in Acts 5, 3 and 4, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in, thy heart, in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. See, the thing that you get from that is he said you lied to the Holy Ghost. And he said you lied to God. So, that would mean that God, the Holy Ghost, that they are equal. Because if you lied to the Holy Spirit and you lied to God and it was the same lie, then God the Holy Spirit. But those, all, the Jehovah, the God, they all consist of multiple names. But see, all of these so-called names that I have listed, people call them names of God, are in fact not names, but titles. For there is one name. Of God, as said in Zechariah, and his name is one. Ephesians 4 and 5, one Lord. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is one name. This name has all power. This name is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, this name is the only saving name. Every knee in heaven, earth, and under the earth shall bow before this name. See, this name that I speak of is Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah. 
Because in John 20, 28, and Thomas answered and said unto him, him is Jesus, said unto him, my Lord, my God. Jehovah means Lord. And Jesus is the Lord, according to Thomas, who was a prophet of God. See, Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. In Matthew 14, 17, and they said unto him, we have but five loaves and two fishes. And they gave them to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He fed, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He provided. You see, Jesus is Jehovah Rapha. Acts 3 and 6, then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, Jesus, he healed the lame. Jesus healed ten lepers. In Matthew 19, 20 and 22, a lady who was going to die knew that if she got to Jesus, she could be healed. So she touched his garment and she was healed. You see, Jesus, he's a healer. Jesus is Jehovah Nisi. Jesus conquered death. He was victorious. Something that cannot be undone is the one binding thing, death. When you fall, you can't get up after that because you are dead. But Jesus, he was victorious. He conquered death. In 2 Corinthians 2 and 14, now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. We triumph in Christ. Christ is Jesus. We triumph in Jesus because he is victorious. He is the only victorious one. Jesus is Jehovah Shalom. Mark 4 and 39, and he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. See, it takes a Lord of peace to tell a raging storm in the ocean to just stop. See, and if that isn't good enough for you to say that he's Lord of peace, while talking of Jesus in Isaiah 9 and 6, last, the last four words are the prince of peace. You see, Jesus is God because in Isaiah 9 and 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. See, Jesus is God. It's in the Bible. That's biblical evidence. Jesus is the Savior. Referring to Jesus in Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only saving name. And if you are not in Jesus, you are not saved. Jesus is the Father. If you go to John 8 and 19, then they said unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father. Because if ye had, he doesn't say because, that's, that's me. <laughs> if ye had known me, Ye should have known my father also. Because see, Jesus is his father. Because Jesus is the father. And Isaiah 9 6, if you want to go back to it, it goes, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. You see, he is the Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9 and 6. Now, we get down to Jesus as the Son. God is the Son. There was no scripture evidence. Not a single time in the Bible does it say that God is the Son. But see, Jesus is the Son. Because in the beginning of Isaiah 9, 6, if I can repeat it, unto us a Son is given. Because see, Jesus is the Son. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
You see, God gave his son, which was Jesus. In Isaiah 9, 6, unto us the son is given. The son is given. They directly correlate, both referring to Jesus as the son. And then you have Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the father will send in my name, in Jesus' name, because Jesus is the Holy Ghost. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Jesus because Jesus is the Holy Spirit. See, when you say Jesus, you have said Jehovah. When you say Jesus, you have said Jehovah Jireh. When you say Jesus, you've said Jehovah Rapha. When you said Jesus, you've said Jehovah Nisi. When you say Jesus, you have said Jehovah Shalom. When you say Jesus, you've said God. When you said Jesus, you've said the Savior. When you say Jesus, you've said the Father. And when you say Jesus, you've said the Son. And when you say Jesus, you've said the Holy Spirit. Because all three are one. And that one is Jesus. So when you say Jesus, you've said it all. Because there is no other name. The name of God is Jesus. That is because the answer to what is God's name, that answer that was posed at the beginning, is God's name is Jesus. So, a lot of people, th those same people I was referring to, not going to point out any names, same people I was referring to that say there's three separate names, even though the Bible says there's one name, and then one of the names isn't even in the Bible, and then all the names are Jesus in the Bible, but not going to go there, say that they are, but those people also believe that Matthew, 9, uh, Matthew 28 19 is the scripture that says that how you should be baptized, because it's Jesus talking, even though the whole Bible is the divine word of God, and so it's all God talking. They think Jesus talking is more important than a disciple talking, even though it's God talking. And it says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You see, there's a name to be baptized, and they say that name's God. But see, that even contradicts what they say, because they say there's three names. They say there's three personas. But it says a name of all three. All three of them have one name. They say that name's God, but then that contradicts their whole idea of, well, yeah, but then there's the Father, which is a name, the Son, which is a name, and the Holy Spirit, which is a name, because it's a name. The, the verse that they baptize in is a name. But then, you know, I, I don't know why I have to look it up. If I know it by heart, then I'm going to look it up. Okay, and so now in Acts chapter 2, well, there's a different way to be baptized, or at least it would seem. You see in Acts chapter 2, 38, after the people, after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost has been given for the first time, and the people are, uh, it says, um, now when they heard this, because it's now Peter, and he's preaching to the people who had just crucified Jesus. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? He's, you know, they're saying, what, what do we do to be saved? How, how do we be saved? 
I know, oh my goodness, we just did something really bad. What can we do to correct this? And so then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, that seems contradictory. Baptized in the name of Jesus, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's two different baptisms. Except it's not. You see, the first baptism leaves you with a loop. It leaves you with a hole. It leaves you with something you have to either fill yourself or try to find a different Bible verse that can fill it for you. You see, the first one, it says, in the name, which that name is, like I have up here, a question mark. It never says the name. It just says, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But then you get to Acts chapter 2. Well, they're talking about baptism. It's the same subject. And this is Peter, who was there when Jesus said, in Matthew 20 and 19, baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, in Acts chapter 2, he says, in Jesus Christ. Well, anybody with a lick of sense about them could decipher this really, really hard-to-solve riddle that if a name is given here, and there's a blank that needs a name here, that name will go there. Meaning that you baptize in the name, which is Jesus Christ, which is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, because they're all one. And the name that they, all, that they are all in is Jesus. Amen. I know that uh, Rothland's a little older than Harrison. Uh, it's one of those things where I always worry about little brother being a big brother's shadow. Amen. And, and uh, he wouldn't have it any other way. If, if big brother's going to go do something, little brother's doing it too. It don't matter what it is. You know, we, we held out. We didn't let Rockland do certain things till he got to be a certain age, but Harrison was always getting to do them two years early. Because whenever it was Rockland's turn, it was, <laughs> it was Harrison's turn too. Amen. Amen. Big brother is he is he he is a very mature young man, seventeen years old. I'm very proud of him. I believe that God has a purpose for his life. And, and while he's real quick to argue and fuss with his brother, he's also real quick to come to his brother's defense. That's the way brothers ought to be. Amen. They ought to rough and tumble and scuffle, and that's okay. But they stand shoulder to shoulder, too. I'm very pleased with these two young men. I'd ask you just to give them your heart. Amen. I believe he has a word from God. Now, I, I pretty well knew everything that Harrison was going to say. I have absolutely no idea. What Rockland's going to say, I just know that he and God have been talking about this. Amen. I believe he has a word for you today. And I'd ask you just to, I, I told the boys in my office just a little bit ago, and I believe this. When you step behind this desk, Brother Anderson, you are God's man. And God don't back up for nobody or nothing. So I told my boys, I said, don't be intimidated. Don't let anybody, don't let anything intimidate you because when you stand in this pulpit, you represent the God of all the ages, the ancient of days, 
the one who was and he is and forever will be. He is more than enough. Amen. Put your hands together and welcome Rockland to this pulpit tonight. Thank you. If you would uh, remain standing for the reading of the word, I won't keep you up very long. Hopefully. See if I get my iPad to face the right way. Uh, can you throw that scripture up, Brother Dino? This will be Luke 26, or 22, 36. Then he said unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. I'll be preaching to you today on spiritual Spartans. Here, shortly after the famous Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to buy a sword. He goes as far as telling them that if they have no money to sell the shirt off their backs for one, the disciples bring him two swords, which he decides is enough, and they then go up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays before being approached by a group of soldiers and his friend, Judas. Oh, you, you may be seated. Thank you, Mother, for reminding me. I lied when I said I wouldn't keep you up long. I, I apologize. <laughs> so Judas comes along with his group of soldiers, and we all know what happens next. Judas bestows his betraying kiss. The soldier sees Jesus, and Peter rashly lops off the ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest. These events bring us to John 22 and 51. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, for those of you who don't know what suffered ye thus far means, including myself, he basically told Peter, Put your sword up, and I'm going to heal this dude. Now, uh, now, hold on just one second. Was it not Jesus who just literally 15 verses ago and about six, seven hours in real time uh, told them to go sell literally everything they had, including their shirt, to buy a sword, which he then told them not to use? Now, why would he ask them to do this if he didn't want them to use the swords they bought? More elaboration is given in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 52, where it said in a little plainer words, then said Jesus unto him, Put up thy sword into, his, into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now, we know why Jesus didn't want Peter to use the sword. Because if he took up the sword, he's going to die by the sword. So he told him to put it back up so he didn't get killed by the soldiers, obviously. But why did he have, one buy, or why did he have him buy one in the first place if he wasn't going to have him use it? Uh, we see this in Second uh, Corinthians 10 and 3. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. You see, Jesus told them to buy swords, and he wasn't joking. They merely just misunderstood his meaning at the time. Jesus did talk of selling material items and using material money to buy a material sword. But he'd not, he did not only speak of the material realm. The material sword did serve its purpose. You see, because of the material sword in Peter's actions, Jesus was allowed a chance to minister to the servant of the Jewish high priest. He was able to heal this man and show him that he was God. Although though the, the, the material sword served a purpose, Jesus also spoke of a spiritual sword, the purpose of which was much greater than its physical counterpart. So the question remains... What is this spiritual sword that Jesus talked of sacrificing everything they had for? Is it praise? No. Now, praise is certainly a part of spiritual warfare. I can't deny that. 
In fact, in 2 Chronicles 20 and 22, it says, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Here, it is proven that praise ushers in victory, but praise does not constitute a weapon. Psalms 149 and 6 reads, Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and two-edged swords in their hands. Praise accompanies a sword, but it's not the sword itself. Praise instead is a declaration of victory. We praise God in the trial for victory over the trial. In this way, praise is a clear expression of a very important piece of spiritual warfare. Faith. Faith that the victory will be the Lord's. Now, we know that faith isn't a sword. Faith is represented as a shield in spiritual warfare. Because in Ephesians 6 and 16, Paul says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, Paul doesn't stop there just telling us that faith is a shield. He goes on to tell us what our sword is. In the next verse, he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the sword is the word of God. Now, we'll come back to that, but we can hardly discuss sword and shield warfare without mentioning our title warriors, the Spartans. Now, I'm a big fan of the Spartans, and so are many people today. They've become a large part of our pop culture. See, Spartans were ancient Greeks that inhabited the city-state of Sparta. Uh, the stories of their military might have inspired the 300 movies. I think there's two of them now. I haven't seen the second one. And... Uh, the Spartan Challenge, which is an athletic competition. It's uh, where crazy people go to test how strong they are. I am not one of those crazy people. But ancient Spartans, like their modern-day counterparts in this competition, were very tough. They were very physically-minded people. See, they were bred and trained to be so. Spartan trials started shortly after birth when all babies, no matter who bathed them, no matter if it was the queen's son or a peasant's son, or a peasant's daughter, for that matter, they were bathed in wine. Now, I don't know if you know much about medicine or babies, but bathing babies in wine isn't exactly good for their health. So many of these babies did die. Only the strongest lived. That was the whole goal of the point, or that was the whole goal of the operation. Then babies who survived but showed deformities, like hunchbacks or people who were born with maybe one arm or something like that, they were left in the wilderness to die. Now, Spartan females were strong in their own right. They were renowned for their strength and cunning. They were great business managers, and they managed agriculture while their husbands were away at war. And they were masters of child rearing, uh, renowned for their nanny capabilities. They were hired by many different nations to raise up the children because they were very strict, and they raised up a child that was very disciplined. But it was the Spartan men who were born to be warriors, literally. Spartan children were taken from their mothers at the age of seven and became wards of the state. They began gender-based general education. Spartan males entered a separate program at age 12. This was called a goje. Put simply, this was military basic training for 12-year-old kids. A goje involved physical training in sports like gymnastics, running, jumping, and throwing the javelin and discus. It also forced the boys to endure physical hardship. They were intentionally underfed familiarizing them with the meager rations of battle and encouraging them to learn to provide for themselves. They were induced to constant pain. They were beaten severely and regularly by older students who were given whips to punish those who underperformed. They received one tunic a year to be worn no matter how hot nor how cold. They slept on handmade bulrush beds with no blankets, and they were subjected to one month a year 
where they lived literally on nothing but honey. Try that as a fast. They were also given a base education, but even their reading and writing was limited to what would be useful in battle reports and the epic war poems of Homer. Everything they were taught was centered around war. The training continued for eight years until the age of 20. Here, they were forcibly formed into squads of 15 and joined the ranks of the standing army. They began sleeping and eating in the communal, in the communal barracks and mess hall. Men who were married didn't get to go home to their wives. They saw them for parts of the day, but they slept in the barracks and they ate with their men. This life of constant training and preparation taught soldiers the basics of war. First of all, mastery of war requires mastery of self. Secondly, a warrior accepts that his enemy is trying to kill him. Third, it's not how loud a warrior boasts that matters, but the hits that land on his enemy. And fourth, war must be life itself for those who battle. While, we, while these were the basics of carnal war for the Spartans, they are also the basics of our spiritual war. First, we have to be masters of ourselves. We have to control our flesh through temperance so that we may serve, with, serve the Lord with our whole self. We must know our weaknesses so that we know what to avoid, and we must know our strengths so that we know what role we are to play in the kingdom of God. Secondly, we have to know that our enemy is trying to kill us. You see, we all have to die spiritual death, but our enemy wants to bring sin, which is, or spiritual death, which is eternal death. I meant to say we all have to die physical death. Sorry, we don't all have to die a spiritual death. That would be very bad. <laughs> but our enemy wants to bring sin, which is spiritual death and eternal death. We must fight this battle in all seriousness. It's more important than life or death because it's about the eternal fate of your soul. It's not just the 70 or 80 years that you're going to be around. It's forever. Third, it's the hits that count. Now, see, we all like to laugh and point at the point and laugh, laugh and point, same thing, at the Pharisees in the Bible. Uh, we like to say, you know, they proclaimed religiosity and they, they acted like they were all of that, but they were really corrupt. But are we any better? We like to boast Christianity on the outside. If we wear our hair just right and say just the right things when people are around, everyone will know we're Christians no matter what we do when we're alone. But a warrior knows that only the hits count. Does yelling threats at the top of your lungs bring victory? No. Has your Sunday morning facade ever torn down a stronghold? No. No matter what you say in the kingdom, it's about what you do. You can boast about your spirituality, but you haven't started fighting until you bloody your sword. Finally, war is your life. You, like a Spartan, were born to be a warrior. Spartans lived as warriors first. Family, business, and wealth, they came second. Until they turned 60, they were soldiers. And even then, they stayed on reserve, ready to fight at any time when their nation needed them. You must do likewise. You, were put, you weren't put here to work 40 hours a week. Now, to live, you have to work. I'm not saying you should all quit your jobs. But that doesn't mean it should be your top priority. War comes first. Why? Because working will never save you, but overcoming in battles will. Revelations 3 and 12 reads, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. You were made to fight. You were born and raised on the spiritual battlefield, taught just like a Spartan to endure hardship, to know the essentials of war, to master its instrument, and to hold it foremost in your life. This warrior lifestyle brings us to one of my personal favorite characters in the Bible, Caleb. Caleb means dog in Hebrew, so Caleb's mom really must have hated him. But anyways, 
Caleb made his first appearance at the age of 40 when he was picked to be one of the spies sent by Moses to scout the land of Canaan. Now we know the story. The spies returned after 40 days with this report. In Numbers 13, 27 through 28, they said, Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now the spies had seen the glory of the land promised by God, and they discovered its many riches in all their splendor, but in the end saw only the enemy there. They knew the sons of Anak walked there. These were giants. Sons of Anak were giants. They were literal giants towering 9 to 11 feet tall, you know, Goliath's older brothers. See, Caleb responded to their doubt with zeal. Only a confident warrior can muster in Numbers 13 and 30 when he said, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. You see, Caleb could make the statement not only because of his confidence in their carnal warring abilities, but because he was a spiritual warrior also. Before David ever penned in Psalm 1834, he teacheth my hands to war, Caleb knew that God was the one who really fights our battles. Caleb had this confidence because he had firsthand seen the Lord take a nation of slaves and smote the mighty nation of Egypt. He had watched the waters of the Red Sea part before them and seen the pillar of cloud and fire lead them. Caleb's words did not convince them, however, and he had to travel the wilderness with them. As he wondered, though, he experienced God's power again and again. He saw manna appear with the morning dew. He watched a rock bring forth rivers of living water. He was there when his people crossed the Jordan on dry land. He saw an enemy after enemy crushed by their army, and he watched giants literally fall before a people he had known as slaves. When after 40 years of wandering and five years of fighting, Caleb was offered by Joshua the chance to pick his share of the newly acquired land of Israel, he was 85 years old. That's older than any of us except Brother Tippy, I believe. So, when choosing his inheritance, he didn't choose a retirement city on the coasts, and he didn't pick one in the lush plains of Judah. Instead, he chose a mountain. See, in Joshua 14 and 12, it reads, Now therefore give me this mountain where the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there. That's the sons of Anak, except a different word. They made a word for them. It just means giants. And that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Now, I've noticed that the Marines have an ad campaign running on YouTube lately that shows a battlefield full of soldiers running toward the enemy in which they simply ask, which way would you run? Now, for Caleb, the answer is very simple. He ran towards the giants. Wherever there was an enemy, he wanted to go. Twice when others sought to flee these powerful sons of Anak, Caleb wanted to attack them. Why? Because Caleb lived war. Want proof? At 85, he stormed the city of Hebron and drove off not one, not two, but three giants. You can check me in Judges 15 if you don't believe me. 
He does, how does an 85-year-old fight off three giants? Because he stayed strong. Joshua 14, 11 reads, And yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war both to go out and to come in. The journey didn't wear Caleb down because he lived like a warrior, constantly training with his equipment, always ensuring he was ready to fight no matter the circumstances. As long as Caleb had strength, he fought. He fought not only until he had won many battles, but he fought until he died. This brings us to the one essential of war taught to Spartan warriors not by the Agoge, but rather by their mothers. You see, the parting cry of Spartan mothers is really well known today because of the movies and such. Watching their sons leave for war, they would shout, come home with your shield or on it. Now, this ultimatum was a serious one. It was a mother's ultimate goal that her son would die for the glory and protection of Sparta on the field of battle. Now, your mothers today, you probably don't agree with that statement, but this was the military lives they lived. And so a mother's son who was reported dead after a battle rejoiced. A mother whose son was reported dead after the battle rejoiced, while one whose son survived hung her head in shame. Like Caleb, the duty of a Spartan warrior was simply to fight until he died. If the musicians would please come. Those words, come home with your shield or on it, bring to mind those we discussed earlier. Spoken not by a mother, but by, as Harrison so eloquently put it, the everlasting father. You see, Jesus said, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. In this light, Jesus' words take on a double meaning. The first is explicit. If you live by the physical sword, you will die by it, which is why Peter, or why he didn't want Peter to use the sword. The second is the implicit. If you don't live by the spiritual sword, you won't die by it. Now, I don't know why this is a bad thing, or it doesn't seem like this is a bad thing, but I'm about to tell you why it is. Because we too share our ultimate goal with Caleb and the Spartans. We must die fighting. Because to die fighting means to die saved. Jesus wants us to live by our spiritual sword, the words of God. Or the word of God, rather. He promised that if we live every day as a battle with one hand around the hilt of our sword and the other brandishing our shield, we will die the same way. My hope for you all today is that you will live like Caleb as spiritual Spartans. Standing firmly upon the word of God, your sword, knowing it, drilling with it, and committing its every aspect to your memory so that you might use it to strike at the enemy. And that you bear your faith, your shield, before you always, that it might be strong enough to withstand the enemy's attack. To live like this, however, requires sacrifice. You see, Jesus told the disciples to sell their clothes and buy a sword. To be able to own a sword, you may have to give up everything you have. But the sacrificing doesn't stop there. You see, to wield a sword, you not only have to have one, but you have to know how to use it. So you have to take the word of God. You have to study the word of God. You have to put it in your life and figure out how to use it to hit the enemy. Because that's what matters. This sword is useless unless you study it. The sacrifice, while great, is worth it. Through this sacrifice, you gain death by the sword, which is eternal life. If you would all stand. You see, tonight I am issuing 
a call to arms. These altars are open to those who would take something that they know is standing in the way of their sword and lay it down as a sacrifice so that they might buy one. If you would come here and decide what it is that is holding you back from what God wants you to be, that is holding you back from establishing the word of God in your life and taking up your sword so that you might live by it and die saved by it, I would ask you to come here today and lay down whatever it is that is holding you back tonight.